Good evening. As you can see on the screen, we're in our series looking at the most misused and abused pieces of Scripture. Tonight we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. I'll read that verse to you and then we'll talk about it. It says, For where two or three have gathered in my name, they often take this verse out of context. Now that is from the NIV, the new incorrect version of the Bible. Your version probably says this, For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. This is the signature passage for small gatherings, isn't it? When you have a devotional in your hotel or maybe at home, maybe you're traveling and you stop and have a short devotional, whatever it may be, we often use this verse. You know, where two or three are gathered. And I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here. I certainly don't want to come across as degrading or demeaning, but I do think that it should always be our goal to consider verses within their context, to be the best Bible student that we can possibly be. And in the case of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, this has nothing to do with small group gatherings, absolutely nothing. In fact, we know that God is omnipresent. We know that he is with us all the time. In fact, his spirit lives within us. He dwells within the individual Christian. Plus, are we saying that Jesus refuses to be in our midst unless two or three are gathered? What if there's more than two or three? Is Jesus not like crowds? Someone once said a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And I agree totally. Throughout this series, our goal has been to answer the question, what is God saying? Now, oftentimes, people want to answer the question or ask the question, what do I want God to say? And that's not the proper question. The proper question is, what is God saying? And a key to accomplishing that is, of course, context. We want to be clear in our understanding of what it is that God is trying to say. We don't need uh, any more DIY theologians, you know, do-it-yourself theologians. We don't need any more of those. The question is not, what do I want the Bible to say? But what is God saying? Whatever the issue, whatever the passage, whatever the verse, we should be seeking God's intent. What is he saying? What does he want me to glean from this verse or this passage, this book? In order to study the Bible in that sort of fashion, then we've got to consider every piece of Scripture associated with a thought, a theme, idea, etc. And one of the worst things we can do is reach a conclusion without considering context. So, with that being said, let's look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 15. We could back up even further, but let's just go there. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. Actually, verse 20 is paramount to understanding the entirety of Matthew chapter 18. I mean, it is the signature verse, not for small gatherings, but for understanding what it is that Jesus is actually talking about here. 
Matthew 18, verse 20, is the punctuation point on everything that Jesus has been saying up to this point. Where two or three are gathered in my name is the signature verse. And this is not the only time we see the phrase two or three. Notice verse 16, which is directly related to verse 20. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Virtually every time you see this phrase employed, two or three witnesses, it's speaking of having people there to establish or confirm a charge. Both the Old and New Testaments are very clear that the Lord's people should not entertain a charge against someone based on he said, he said, she said stuff, based on hearsay. Instead, you have two or three witnesses before one can be convicted of a wrongdoing. And we see this in passages like Deuteronomy 19.15, 2 Corinthians 13 and 1, 1 Timothy 5.19. And this is precisely the point of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Rather than being a signature verse for small group gatherings, it's a signature verse for church discipline. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The context of his words pertains to the theme of handling conflict within the church. This has nothing to do with gathering together for worship, for a devotional outside of church. This is about how to properly carry out church discipline, and Jesus spells out a process for us. Wouldn't it be great if you were in a situation as, as elders, as ministers, try to figure out how to, how to discern a certain situation when there's conflict or when someone is living in sin? You know, how, how would you handle that? Jesus gives a prescription right here. Number one, personal confrontation. Number two, confirmation before witnesses. Number three, public confrontation by the church. And four, hopefully it never gets there, but public rejection by the church. So look at it with me just briefly. Step one, go and show him his fault in private. That's the first step. This might require teaching. If the brother is not aware of his wrongdoing, then it is necessary that the sin be brought to light. See that in Acts chapter 18, for instance. It might require encouragement. Some have fallen into sin through discouragement and despair or neglect. So to rebuke a brother or sister in that kind of situation could only make things worse. So it could drive them further away into further despair. So we have to use some discretion there. In this state, they need exhortation. They need hope that can only come through brotherly love and encouragement. That's Hebrews 10, 24. Discipline may require reproving those who know better but are consciously rebelling. If a brother is rebelling against God, he needs the strong medicine of rebuke, perhaps. We know that Peter was rebuked by Paul. We see that in Galatians 2, 14. Timothy was told that sometimes you even got to rebuke an elder. However, a rebuke must not be made in anger or with a vindictive attitude. One who receives rebuke will often take it negatively. Oftentimes, they will cry foul. They will be defensive. They may even try to justify or to blame. Rebuke must always be tempered with compassion and love. Notice that the instruction is to go and show him his fault in private. This isn't a public matter. Not yet, anyway. So this this doesn't say go and gossip, go and slander, go and show him his fault in private. We are to keep this between us and the guilty party. We are to go and tell, and if this step works, and hopefully it does, mission accomplished. If it doesn't, then we move on to the next step. And what is the next step? Well, it says, take one or two more with you. 
And the purpose of this step, we've already alluded to, is to have other testimony of what actually took place besides just your own. We mentioned Deuteronomy 19.15 a moment ago. He quotes it here. It is legal language. If a public accusation is brought against a man, it must be more than just he, shit, he said, she said. It must be more than my word against his. There needs to be witnesses. The purpose of witnesses is really twofold. First, they confirm what took place. What was the accusation? What was the sinner's reaction? If it becomes necessary to bring the issue before the church, then there needs to be reliable information that can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Secondly, it gives more force to restoring a brother. A brother caught in sin might reject one brother's admonition. It's not so easy to reject two or three. But I also want you to make special note of the fact that this is still a private matter. This hasn't gone public yet. This is kept between the original parties and the witnesses. It's still not public, not yet, and it is not a vicious attack. It is a confrontation motivated by love and concern for the one who is erring. Step three, hopefully it never comes to this, is tell it to the church. If the confrontation goes unheeded, then the third step is to publicly confront the sinner. Now, truth is, by this time, it's probably already public. By this time, there's already been a couple of posses gathered that are against each other, a couple of camps that may be warring against each other. There can be no more private interaction at this point. It is time to bring the matter before the church. However, the purpose still is not to throw stones. The purpose is to restore the wayward brother. So the motivation for this step is to summon all the love and compassion and truth power of the congregation. Many are lost today because the church did not handle this step correctly. All too often, churches handle church discipline, but they do so aggressively. They look at it like, we've got to keep the church pure, so we've got to kick, you know, kick them to the curb, we've got to trim the fat, and that's not what is being conveyed here. That is not the message that Jesus is setting forth. And as we'll look at it in a moment, it's not the message that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 5 either. It's always about love and motivation, and the motivation being that we love you and we want you to be restored, to come back, to be a faithful member of the congregation. Step four, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus' words here regarding Gentiles and tax collectors is a reference to their obnoxious practices. You know, there, there were... Very few groups more hated by the Jews than tax collectors and Gentiles. And it means that the church should try the extreme measure of breaking fellowship to restore an erring brother. If this spiritual intervention in the first three steps doesn't work, well then there's one final step, and that is public rejection. When a brother or sister cannot be restored by the previous three steps, this is the only alternative. But again... The motivation is love and compassion and trying to restore a brother or sister to Christ. Consider what Paul wrote on this very subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 4, he states, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So what Paul's getting at here is these Corinthian brethren were allowing sin to go unchecked. They're relying especially sexual sin to go unchecked. And Paul says, you got to do something here. Not only are you not doing something, you're, you're rather arrogant about it. Paul declared that the brothers should have been taken away from among you, he says, delivered to Satan and put away. Companies should not be kept with this individual. Even fraternizing over a common meal was forbidden. And the reason why is because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You start letting this go unchecked, what else are you going to let go unchecked? And it starts to have... An effect kind of like a pandemic, it spreads. And I want you to notice the beginning of verse 4. Paul writes, in the name of our Lord Jesus. And also notice he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Paul isn't necessarily speaking out of anger. He's not saying kick him to the curb and trim the fat. He's appealing to the Lord. There is, this is a God thing. This isn't vigilante justice. This isn't about bringing down the hammer or showing someone who's boss. This is an issue that starts with our Lord. And it is tough stuff. No doubt about it. It's hard to come out smelling like roses when you have to enact church discipline. Can't we just love them through it? Do we, do we really have to take this step? I mean, What's others in the community going to think about us? I mean, no one's going to want to come and place membership here if they know that we publicly rejected someone. We'll never grow by doing something like this. In fact, it will probably cause a split. It's just bad publicity. But if we gain nothing else from Matthew 8 or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's that we cannot afford to turn a blind eye. Sometimes church discipline is a necessity, and when carried out properly, the Lord is there in the church's midst, giving his approval. That's the context of Matthew 18. Our Lord mandates and approves church discipline, even if it leads to that ugly word, disfellowship. But, and this is huge, right? This is a huge but. Christians must follow the proper procedure and with the right motivation. Consider this scenario. Mike and Jeff are really good friends. But lately, Mike has been noticing that, that Jeff it has been acting a little strange. He can't quite put his finger on it. Until one day, out of the blue, he gets a phone call from Jeff's wife, who's frantic. It seems that Jeff came home smelling like alcohol. She had been suspecting that he had a drinking problem that he was trying to hide. And when she confronts him about it, he gets very angry and even gets physical with her. And so she leaves the house, takes the kids and goes to her mother's house. And she calls Mike and just says, can you do something? Can you just step in and do something? And so Mike takes Jeff out to lunch. And he delicately confronts the situation, and Jeff's face turns red. He gets very angry, and he storms out of the restaurant. He goes home, and he confronts his wife and threatens her again until she leaves the house. Mike feels like he has no other recourse but to go to the elders and tell them about the folly of his, his Christian brother, Jeff. Did he do the right thing? You know, it's hard to know what to do in that moment. You don't want to out your friend. But at the same time, if you love your brother, if you want what's best for him, 
then you hold them accountable, right? Church is family, and family looks out for one another. Family cares for one another. Family holds one another accountable. God loves his children. He cares about his children. He holds his children accountable. He even disciplines his children, and he expects the church to do the same. Now, granted, that's not easy. Discipline is tough. We all know how hard it is to discipline our kids. We don't like doing that. The old saying that your dad used to tell you, this is going to hurt me more than it will you. Well, let me try it. Let's just reverse roles and see. But it does. It hurts to discipline. But you also know that if you don't discipline your child, you're going to raise a bunch of spoiled brats. They're not going to be able to function well in society. And so you have to do the dirty work there of discipline. And so God expects the church to do the same thing. But there has to be the proper motivation. Why do you discipline your child? Because you love them. And you want what's best for them. That's the same motivation behind God's discipline, the church's discipline. There are some who believe that discipline is the opposite of love. I've heard people say, well, you know, the elders aren't sinless. Who are they to to throw stones? Well, remember, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, and yet he still rebuked others. You don't have to be sinless in order to honor the Bible's teaching on church discipline. I mean, that scenario I gave you a moment ago, Mike truly loves Jeff which is precisely why he went to the elders. Because not only did he want his marriage to work, not only did he want him to to get off the bottle, but he also wanted him to have a right relationship with God. That was first and foremost. To be faithful, to go to heaven. Church discipline, when done correctly, is not demonstrating a lack of love. In fact, it's the most loving thing that you could ever do. You don't love anyone if you're willing to let them go to hell for fear of confronting them. Don't tell me you love them, because you don't. You don't love anyone if you're willing to let them go to hell for fear of confronting the sin in their lives. For a family to tolerate wrongdoing among its members is not a sign of love, it's a sign of irresponsibility. You don't love your brother or sister if you allow them to go to hell rather than attempting to correct their behavior. You see, church discipline is a family matter, and we cannot afford to turn a blind eye. It is the family's way of responding to those who refuse to obey the will of the Father. It is absolutely necessary, it's absolutely biblical, and and, and thankfully, it's pretty rare. Rarely does a situation ever rise to this level. But if it does, we've got to be willing to confront it. Let me exit off the interstate for just a second. There is a statement found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, that I think really sets the tone for this entire series. And it reads like this. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, not to be guilty of the very thing that I'm preaching against, giving you a verse and not giving you a context. The context is that Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect who didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. You remember they give this crazy scenario. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Jesus is responding, and two things stick out about Jesus' statement here. Number one, Jesus makes it clear that there are right and wrong answers to theological issues. And in the case of the Sadducees, they had gotten it wrong. And secondly, The reason they got it wrong is because, at least in part, they did not understand the Scriptures. And I think one of the biggest mistakes when it comes to determining Scripture is that we read our Bibles in segments, in, in, you know, mostly devotional books are written that way. It's random sequence. 
By and large, God did not present Scripture as discrete little individual pieces of information which on their own, uh, isolated from a larger narrative, were meant to kind of be piecemealed into our lives. There is a flow of thought. As you've heard me say over and over again, there is a story, there's a narrative here. There's a flow and you almost certainly miss the meaning when you don't read the entire context surrounding a verse. And if you miss the meaning, then you miss what God actually said. And if you miss what God actually said, well, then you missed everything. I want to be clear about something. I'm not doing this series because I think Oldham Lane has a problem with this. I'm not doing this series because I believe that Oldham Lane misuses and abuses Scripture too often. In fact, Oldham Lane, long before I got here, was always known as a very biblical, biblically literate, is that the right phrase? Very biblically literate congregation. Very proud to be associated with a group of people that are so, that are so in tune to what God's Word says. However, we must be clear on what it is that we're trying to get to, where we're trying to get to, to rightly divide the Word of God. There's a preacher and a song leader at a particular church that didn't really get along. They had a very adversarial relationship, and it came out quite often in the service. One Sunday, the preacher gave a sermon on how we need to be more committed, kind of like we've been doing, talking about all in. And he talked about commitment. And right afterwards, the preacher led the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. The next Sunday, the preacher got up and, and talked about giving. He talked about how we should give sacrificially. And immediately, the song leader stood up and led the song, Jesus Paid It All. The preacher was starting to get irritated. He understood, he knew exactly what the song leader was doing. The next week, he talked about how uh, we should bridle our tongues, how we should not gossip. The song leader got up and led, I love to tell the story. And so the preacher had had enough, and the next week he stands up and tells the congregation that he's going to resign in a couple of weeks. The song leader gets up and leads, why not tonight? <laughs> the next week the preacher gets up, and he tells the congregation that he is leaving, that Jesus brought him there and that Jesus is taking him away and the song leader stands up and leads what a friend we have in Jesus <laughs> there's just no doubt about it where you have people you have problems and the church is no different I've told you before if you find the perfect church don't go there you'll ruin it where you have people you have problems but problems are also opportunities and how we handle them makes all the difference. Can we help you tonight? Is there something that we can do for you? Dave's going to lead us in a song. I invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.